this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Stephen Jenkinson. He's not only an author, an activist, a musician, and the founder of a school, but also an inspired etymologist, a spiritual trickster, and a mythopoetic storyteller, cracking sticks and tossing them into a low fire as the spirits in the embers rise with his words. He's a sorcerer of sorts who disenchants us from some of our most habitual and destructive beliefs about what it means to live and to die, to age and, in the title of his latest book, To Come of Age. The subtitle of his book is The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And I spoke to Stephen at a moment when our most imminent trouble seems to be the global pandemic of the coronavirus, one that, on the date of our interview, March 18th, 2020, appears as though it will only grow worse and more deadly here in North America and around the globe. Yet Stephen puts this acute trouble into a larger, longer, and ultimately more troubling perspective. He leads us, as he does in his book, into the act of what he calls wondering, without recourse to certainty or comfort but with perhaps the possibility of emerging more clear-eyed and attentive to the world in front of us and what it asks of our living and our dying and our time together. Stephen Jenkinson, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I appreciate having you here, and um, I'm going to jump right in. So here we are in the middle of this pandemic that's taking place, uh, COVID-19. Um, you know, I saw today that the first case just made it to you up there in Ottawa. Um, and you've done more wondering, uh, or you've done significant amount of wondering about what it means to die and what it means to become old in various senses. And so when you kind of look out at what's happening in our moment, what are you seeing? What are you wondering about right now? Well, uh, first thing to say is I'm not sure that we're in the middle of anything. I mean, we could be uh, very much on, almost on the tail end of it if China's example is any anything to go by. Or we could be, uh, you know, at the front end of something unimaginable. Uh, so so we're, we're adrift. I mean, that's the first thing to say. We're... Some, we're like someone with a chart 
but no wind at sea. I think that's where we are. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I should say I'm lucky enough to be sitting on a on a porch in a parched, i.e. no rain for six months part of southern Mexico where I'm a, living the life of a pulmonary refugee, which is to say I have to take refuge from my own winter in order to uh, provide for myself anything like a spring or a summer or a fall. And uh, Mexico has been very kind to me in that regard. And, and, and yet again now, because, of course, like everybody looking out the window, the hills look the same as they did before the onset of all of this. The birds are moving around and certainly not keeping to themselves or exercising that discretionary distance. And I have to make up my mind what's happening, quote, out there. And the way I do it, sadly, is by temporary and fitful recourse to this beast that's allowing you and I to speak together now. In other words, I'm, I'm suggesting, and it might be monstrous to suggest it, I don't know, that the, um, that the pervasiveness of the internet might not be what we should have recourse to in order to come to some understanding of what's happening. Because the assumption is that if it shows up in the internet, it answers the question, what's happening? And I'm not talking about, you know, your famous fake news problems in your country and so on. I'm simply saying that it's a kind of, it's like that, the internet is like a sieve, isn't it? That you put in your kitchen sink to catch all the shite so it doesn't block up your pipes. I mean, it really is. I mean, sorry, but, but for, you know, uh, I think any lucidity requires us to be honest and frank about it. This is not to say that it doesn't catch the odd pearl as it goes, but pearl vendors, they don't have recourse to the internet. That's not, that's not where the best work is done. And so, of course, it's become a, and you can hear the dogs barking, so this is real-time situation. And uh, I, don't, I don't think this is a circumstance in which we ought to um, decide, never mind our fate, but even what constitutes our sort of ragged present by the, the kind of extraordinary endocrine drip, which, it, which becomes the, you know, the information tirade in an information drunk age. So I'm not sure that we know, quote unquote, much by virtue of being inundated with statistics and warnings and all of that. Not that these aren't useful. But uh, I guess what I'm really saying is we'll see if we know what's happening. And by that I mean um, we have an immense obligation right now to decide rather than to know. That, that's the circumstance before us. We're, we're not going to get to know much about this. And never mind what the... Uh, uh, epidemiologists have to tell us god bless them i should say but but this is not a matter of knowing what's happening this is a matter of having to decide in a storm you know what constitutes rain for example and uh, our, our situation is far from reassuring and i do not mean legions of us collapsing in the street i mean the likelihood that a consumer culture can absorb this latest challenge to its 
normal day and turn a plague into another normal day is absolutely breathtaking and unnerving at the same time. And I'm afraid the likelihood is that this will turn into another war story within months, never mind years, months. And although I'm hearing a number of people make drastic declarations that somehow this will magically turn things, transform things, uh, change people's understanding of where in the arc of their personal life they are and in the life of, I don't know, certain portions of the planet that they are, I don't think that's guaranteed at all. And this is not just somebody old and bitter speaking to you. I have no bitterness uh, that I've been able to find about any of these things. But I have been around long enough to see the, the kind of amoeba-like capacity of a consumer culture to absorb anything that challenges it and turn it into the next thing that it, that it is and that it knows. And uh, we have a kind of, I guess, a moral charge that is gathering around us now that says, no matter what else transpires here, we ought to be able to have this be the crisis that it properly should be. And the etymology of crisis has nothing to do with catastrophe and nothing to do with uh, uh, bad news, or bad moon rising, any of that. The word crisis etymologically in its old form meant something like the moment where you are obliged to sieve. I used the word sieve earlier, and there it is again. The time when you're obliged to discern in some kind of fundamental way because it's rather than waiting for you to choose the moment, the moment has been forced upon you, which is where our sense of calamity attached to this word comes from, that we wouldn't have chosen to slow down. We wouldn't have chosen to obey the traffic sign that says, be prepared to stop. And so now the stop is imposed upon us. And the worst thing that could happen is that we get back to normal, you know, within 48 or 72 hours of getting the all clear siren. So in some ways we have this moment to step outside of of that normalcy. And I would love to, to circle back to that moment where you were talking about being on the porch, because I, I don't think that's incidental at all. One of the things that, that comes out so powerfully in both of your books is how important place is and the, the place that's right in front of you and the way that you adhere and, and root and attend to it and the way that it calls you into being is a kind of compass, is a kind of way of, of being alive um, that's in such distinction to looking to, say, the internet or the web or the news for a compass. Um, could you tell us a little bit? I mean, that's the wrong way to say it. the The adventure of the book, I think, in some ways, in both books, is moving into almost a cosmology of place, an ontology of place. Um, but could you could you start us on that journey of of in some ways what's right in front of us all that we might be missing that is more grounding in so many different senses to who we are? Mm -hmm. Well, there's nothing available to you that's not right in front of you. And as painfully obvious as that might sound, let's use our temporal disorientation as an example. Um, You know, you're old enough to remember 
uh, a time when you were held in, in your schooling years to the obligation to live up to your potential. I mean, this people were beaten with this phrase, frankly. And uh, the amazing thing was the people who were using the phrase were very clear about what your potential was. You, on the other hand, uh, laboring under no clarity whatsoever about it. But where does this potential lie that you're supposed to live up to? And the answer is, it lies in the time that never comes, which is called the future. As long as it's in the future, you can be in some ghostly fashion held to account to live up to it. As soon as it appears, it's not the future anymore and it's not potential. It's just what you're doing. It's just what you're trying to do and so forth. So it, it, there's something monstrous about the obligation to a future that that takes precedence over your obligation to the present to the present. That's the first thing I would say about it. And the next thing is the good news is whatever you need to be able to do in order to craft something like an authentic presence in this world is not any farther away from you than you can reach without moving too far. What that means is we have a, an extraordinary obligation to rein in our striving and to have it obey the limitations of place. That's what place is by definition, whether you're talking about a temporal place, a spatial place, uh, even an emotional or psychic place. All of these things by definition are not infinitely expanding. Every one of them is tethered by necessity to the limits of what keeps it alive and keeps it going. And, you know, I grew up in a time where the uh, limitations were for suckers. Personal limitations, economic limitations, of course, space exploration limitations in your country, and all of that. And we have, it's, it's no shock at all to me, uh, as you read in the, or excuse me, the come of age book, that we're living in a time when the notion of elderhood itself has been basically discredited, secretly sought after, but overtly discredited. Because old people are discredited across the board for very understandable, but not necessarily defensible reasons. Okay. And at the same time that this discrediting is going on, our sense of being, uh, you know, lost is increasing at the same time that people's lifespan is increasing. Well, the, you know, you don't have to. You don't have to be a prophet. You just have to be willing to read the news. The news is very clear. The less obligation we feel to live inside the limits that are entrusted to us, the more likely it will be that we will transgress without knowing it and without meaning to. And our lives, you know, I'm speaking in a contemporary sort of Anglo-North American sense of, the, of this is my observation anyway. Our lives are testimonies to transgression. Finally, you know, they, they're locating the source of this virus at a particular wet market in China, in a particular city, in a particular province in China. Okay, now once you've isolated that, what now? Well, for those of who are listening but haven't heard, although that would be few by now, a wet market is a place where domestic animals and wild caught animals 
are obliged to endure the presence of each other in anguished um, proximity. And in that circumstance, obviously it's come to pass that wilderness viruses have jumped the chasm. If that's only the only story you tell, all you're going to do is demonize the Chinese inclination to, to eat exotic wild animals, which is not laudable for sure. But I'm not sure as a life lesson to be drawn from a global pandemic, that's worthy, a worthy conclusion. So instead of that, I'd suggest to you that what we're being led to is a kind of cliff edge understanding. And it goes like this. We're going too many places. We're not obeying limits that now have to be self-imposed. We're going to too many high places, too many deep places. We're going to too many uncharted places and charting them. The entire world has subjected itself to the Google mapping. And this is, of course, our equivalent of the uh, doomsday book that the Normans inflicted upon the English when they conquered them. It's exactly the same function. So what are you saying, man? I guess I'm saying something like this. This disease, this virus that is now afoot among us, comes from the wild, not as punishment, because that's not the wild's way from everything I can tell. That's our game. Their game is consequence, a consequence that they are not at liberty to withhold. It is in the nature of a wild to disseminate consequence. That's how it works. And that's what makes it reliable unto itself. And the wilderness recognizes itself in the web of consequence that unfolds ongoingly. We're strangers there and we don't belong. And we've brought back a souvenir that we didn't know was there. And the souvenir amounts to this. And I was in, I believe it was high school, but maybe earlier. We read a science fiction short story. I've never forgotten it. And it was about time travel. So this is going back to, I guess, the 70s. And, uh, and it might have been older than that. And in the time travel scenario, there was a bunch of young people who were getting a chance to go. And the, the, all the, uh, the uh, circumstance had been worked out that it was going to be more or less fail safe, with one exception. And the exception was covered by the briefing that they received before they went in the time capsule. And the briefing went like this. The only thing you can't do is change anything. Okay, that's the important thing. You can go, you can look and learn. You come back and tell us everything you saw. But you can't change anything. Because we don't know what the consequences of that will be. We haven't worked out that bug yet. So off they go, of course. And you can hear where this story is going. <clears throat> and they get out at whatever year it was. And some prehistoric time and they're going about and seeing dinosaurs and it's all very amazing and uh, and then they get back in because it's time to return and this is basically the last page of the book or the story and they open the door uh, having returned and the, the chronometer says that they're in their home year whatever it was except there's nothing that's recognizable when they open the door and panic ensues of course and screaming and crying and everything like this and everybody's imploring each other did you change anything and everybody swears they didn't and they're right from the point of view of intention nobody changed anything 
But as people collapse in heaps of despair and worse, one person notices on the bottom of the tread of another person's shoe, mud, and in the mud is entombed a butterfly. And that's how the story ends. It's an amazing observation about consequence outstripping intention. And we, we're already in that alchemy, you know, unknowing. And we're trusting, trusting guys like Egon Musk to engineer our way out of here. It's just an unbelievable circumstance we're in now. But that story is a good little whisper campaign for the attention to detail that's now asked of us all. It seems to me that that one of the the methods of your book, the way you introduce it, is calling it wondering to wonder about things. Um, but it seemed it, as I was experiencing the book, I was trying to ask myself what what was happening to me, and ideas like unlearning came to me um, that you're you're creating a certain kind of disillusionment so that we're we're not under these illusions that are taking us out of the time that we're in, that are taking us out of the place that are in, that are giving us this sense that we can, we can beckon towards or heed notions of infinite growth, for example. Um, you know, and, and there are moments where you do that explicitly with these Western ideas of potential that you brought up or the eternal or the universal or the inevitable. Um, but it, one of the the powers of the book, it seems to me, is is to begin to kind of clear this this room that I didn't even realize was in my eyes, so that I could start to see, in some ways, what's what's right there. To circle back to what you were saying, um, and I wonder if you you just talk a little bit about that sense. Sometimes you talk about it in terms of of conjuration and sorcery. Um, but but this idea that we we are being beholden to or or almost under the enchantment of these these spells that are preventing us from seeing as you said what's what's right in front of us seeing what it is we need and being able to embrace those possibilities wow well habit is what one of the things you're talking about here without having used the word yet. When we, so it seems, as an armchair anthropologist, I'd make this observation. When we came down out of the trees in the savannah, the only reason we made it at all, and I'm not sure it's the greatest outcome for the world, but the only reason we made it at all is because we had a certain capacity, which you could call cunning almost. And the capacity was to recognize pattern. This seems to be fundamental to our ontology uh, as, a, you know, as a species and fundamental to our survival. And uh, the way it happened, of course, was, I mean this explicitly and literally, that you would look into a, a thicket and you would be able to tell with careful observation what the thicket was and what was in the thicket that may have two eyes and bigger teeth than you. We came down out of the trees and eventually we got past the survival stage of things, but the, our inclination to be pattern recognizers is in the circuitry and didn't go anywhere, it seems to me. 
And if you fast forward to now, with that predilection still very much at play, what you end up with is that we, we glare at the world. It's a big generalization, and certainly there are people who don't. But I just invite this as something to think about. We glare at the world and dare it to be an exception to what we already know. That's pattern recognition taken to a kind of tyrannical level, you see. And if it doesn't obey the patterns that we bring, we oblige it to do so. We make it be a ver every new thing becomes a version of what we already know. And that's what habit is. And that's the root understanding of the word prejudice. The inclination to have a pri an a priori conviction about something without the necessity of engagement or experience first. That's what prejudice is. Racial, of course, but many other kinds as well. So these are spells. That's the word I, I, I chose to talk about them with in come of age. And spells are cast not principally in the mind, not principally in thought, but by the tongue. That's the, the vector of spell casting. Spells are cast by the tongue. And every good Wicca person knows that, right? So they don't think spells. <laughs> that probably wouldn't be good for you. I don't know. But, uh, but we cast, and there's a, a literal meaning to cast, right? It's to throw. And the gesture of casting a spell is opening your mouth and more often than not, rhythmically incanting something. If that's true for spells, I suspect it's true for spell breaking at the same time. The exact same agency, employing the exact same repertoire, uh, invoking the same capacity to bring things to speech is what breaks spells too. And that's what's so mystifying because we've divided the world up into good things make good stuff happen and bad things make bad stuff happen. But language doesn't fit into that understanding and invocation doesn't either. And you can do some real darkness unawares by an unwillingness to reconsider your speech. And you can bring some genuine and much needed clarity to the proceedings by virtue of your willingness to attend to your speech and to the speech of others. I learned that in the death trade of all places. And people might discredit the learning as a consequence of some kind of, you know, 11th hour dilemmas that dying people experience. Well, their experience was ongoing of the following. They, they were employing a language to talk about their dying that was never crafted in the presence of the realities of their dying. And this is true of intellectually oriented people religiously and spiritually and devotionally oriented people, they all basically had the same dilemma. They were trying to approach their dying by using a language that forbade them to do so because it was uninformed by the realities of dying that they were proposing to learn by talking about them. So they learned how to talk doctor instead, or they learned how to talk Buddhist instead. You know, suddenly we're all dying all the time, which is a classic amateur's mistake. It's absolutely not true that we're all dying all the time. If it were true, then a, then a terminal diagnosis means nothing, achieves nothing, signals nothing. It's just another day at the office. But I was there, and it changes everything. And it's a reality that wasn't true, you know, 
an hour ago. And it's the only thing that is true now. That's how emphatic it is. And in that sense, things with that degree of finality are, are properly understood as deities, you know, as, as divine presences in the room and in our understanding. So all of which is to say that the language that you and I have recourse to right now is entrusted to us. Some people say it's imposed upon us. Those people tend not to be able to speak very well. People who are able to speak well, that means faithful to the language, not manipulating it like politicians do, but faithful to the language that was entrusted to them, are turned to in times of real ordeal. And their particular expertise is not microbiological. Their particular expertise is the habits of the tongue, which occlude and obscure. In times like this, clarity, not light, clarity is the order of the day. And anybody who's going to occupy, you know, the soapbox for five minutes, myself included, has a real moral, uh, political obligation, the obligations of a citizen to clarify their language and to abandon the old language that was rooted in the idea that if we just think hard enough or work hard enough or spend enough R&D money, we're going to get it right. We're not getting it right. And the language has to bear forward these deep, obscuring confusions. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I I came across DieWise, fortunately for me, after I was diagnosed with cancer. And reading it was the first time that I didn't feel like I was losing my mind in the kinds of conversations that I had to have after I was diagnosed. Um, just the kind of insanity of, of cheerfulness and denial and, you know, you call it this med tech and hope. Hope is this kind of crushing, soul-destroying way of thinking about your own experience. Um, and and as I think as, as I hear you talking about the attendance to the language, you know, we have we have these habits that have led us, as you were saying, to be able to, as you call it, die without dying. And it seems like in come of age, something like aging without aging or becoming an elder, um, and that these are linguistic habits. Could you tell us a little bit about about your method of, of reusing the language to bring us to new awarenesses, to break those habits? Um, you have this deep reliance on etymology, and you've done it a couple of times already in our, our interview today, but I, you, know, there, you also talk about the problem of working with English in and of itself as a language that in part is inherited from Rome. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us or lead us forward into how, how do we begin to use the language with this kind of clarity when we're up against 
the abuses of it that surround us, especially about these these crucial things, such as our own deaths or our own aging. Okay, that's a pretty important, daunting, and well-crafted question. So let me see what I can do, not knowing that it was coming. First thing I would say to you is, here, I'm going to mess with the way you asked me. Uh, and it goes like this. I don't use the language. That phrase implies that it's sitting on a shelf in some kind of suspended animation, you know, uh, waiting for me to take it off according to my whim or my need. And then, of course, jettisoning it as soon as it served me, etc. I'm not saying you meant that by the word, but you can see that the word to use really implies that kind of treatment. For example, when you were in high school and you were accused of using somebody, <laughs> that wasn't a compliment, right? That was, that was dark. And if you happen to have done so, that's darker still. So, so I don't use the language. What I try to do is remember the language well. That's one, in no particular order. Uh, the other thing I try to do is is I try to be found admirable by the people who came before me. Now, that's going out on a limb because, you know, do I have a way of knowing? No, I don't. But I, I understand the language as something that was entrusted to me, not something I can do with as I see fit to pick and choose as the way people are doing with ancestors these days, you know, thank, thanks to Ancestry.com and all the rest. So, so a language is a kind of a cultural patrimony that's entrusted to us. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, you've asked me for instruction and you might have gathered by now that I'm probably not really an instructor. That's the, the irony is that I have a school called the Orphan Wisdom School and in which I do not teach. I'm the principal, um, I should say, guy at the front of the room. That's true. But uh, years ago, I began to implore the people in the school to stop referring to me as a teacher or their teacher or ever to use the verb to characterize what we were doing. And the reason for that is my understanding of teaching as a kind of gesture is to point beyond. It's, it's, it, that's the kind of indicative posture of teaching. It's, it implores in the direction of the not yet or the used to be or some alternative circumstance, or the not quite this. I, on the other hand, have come to understand myself as a practitioner and not a teacher, which means that whatever it is I'm advocating, my advocacy itself has to become a living incarnation of the thing I'm advocating. Failing to do that um, deeply does a deep disservice to the people who are willing to listen and to consider and who've given you five or 15 or, or you know, 400 minutes of their, their day, especially in a time like, like we have now. So, so I'm doing it in the way I'm speaking to you. And I've done so since we first said hello. And I'm not ducking the question by saying that, but I'm just drawing your attention to the fact that it's not like I haven't done that yet. Now I should talk about language and now I should make language kind of the you know the proper focus if you're speaking you should be doing that ongoingly in the same way that if you propose to athleticize you have to do it with your body 
you have to de demonstrate the athleticism <laughs> in order to make the thing real between you. Same. Um, uh, the first ex experience of this kind of discipline is one of being disabled, bordering on being paralyzed. When you begin to attend to your language, the first thing that happens is your saliva goes and your kind of syntactical saliva goes with it. And you feel um, monosyllabic and incapable, which is entirely in keeping uh, with a culture that didn't train you in the noble arts of oratory. And your school probably didn't, although you're doing pretty well considering your upbringing. And I think maybe I am too after 60 plus years of trying to do otherwise. So, so real education, I tend to the word, for example. The, the root word is Latin, Latin verb educo, which means to lead out. So what it means, the presumption of education is that it begins with the problem of being ensconced or entombed or you, you, you get the idea. And, and the, the educator's principal responsibility is to drag your carcass out of the entombment. <laughs> Whether you want to or not, whether you see it that way or not, the obligation of a real educator is to recognize the tomb, uh, the, the crypt, and do everything humanly possible and a few other things besides to see to it that the light of day becomes your companion. And, you know, people who are already persuaded that they're in the light aren't having any kind of education that sounds like that. The principal way by which this can be achieved, it seems to me, is by revisiting what you do every day anyhow. And I take my cue from the meditators, right, Who, which I know nothing about, I should say. But I, I am told that they focus routinely on breath and all the other ordinary things of life. And they elevate the thing that you have to do anyway into a contemplative gem or jewel. Well, what the meditator does with breath I'm doing with language. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm thinking about my students um, and what you were saying about the nature of teaching. And one of the things that comes about so clearly in Come of Age, if you were just to look at the cover, you might mistakenly presuppose that this would be a book addressed to an older generation, those who might aspire to or imagine themselves to be elders. But there's a, a clear and deep concern for a generation right now that, that in a different culture, perhaps in an indigenous culture, would be being led into to an initiation into a rite of adulthood. And as you point out in the book so clearly, we don't have that in Western European North America. Um, and so I'm thinking now about the way in which you speak to those, those, those younger people who in some ways are, are seekers um, but then in other ways, don't even realize that they're in that tomb that you mentioned. Perhaps they have this kind of deep intuitive sense that something is is terribly wrong. Um, 
I'm wondering if you could speak to their dilemma to to the younger people who might be listening to this right now. Okay. Well, again, not to sound repetitive, but I believe I've been doing that very thing. I've been taking but I'm you happy, down I'm roads you've to... already been down. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm happy to do it again right now. Sure. Um, you know, hopefully you realize I'm not being precious by saying such a thing. I'm I'm yeah, suggesting that everything that's been said before now isn't gone and not available to us. And if young people are listening, they should have been listening then too, even though their quote name or the name of their generation wasn't held aloft to signal that this is the time for them to pay attention. That's the first thing. And the second thing would be this. Um, There was a scenario that I described in Come of Age that I half invented and half observed. And it was something called the rate of change. And I learned it in the death trade. We, you know, we were routinely asked by people how much longer they had to live. And routinely, most people in white coats demurred and wouldn't answer the question, at least not in those terms. <clears throat> and they would claim that this is not knowable and so on. But of course, privately, we did know. And we, with great authority and with a great degree of regularity, uh, were right about how long they had. And yet, we wouldn't we wouldn't, you know, let's say, be too generous with the information. And generally, the understanding was we weren't being generous because we were being kind. It's a strange distinction to have to make. And we were being kind by not bothering them with information that they could not alter upon learning it, as if that's the only reason to learn when you're going to die so you can do something about it, instead of living in the presence of it anyhow, which was rarely encouraged. So... I took this understanding of the rate of change and the distinction it makes is this. There are, of course, changes that ensue in your body as in the course of your dying. And you can pay attention to those and you don't need any education to do it. And uh, most people did. But the subtler observation to make is the rate at which the changes are changing. And, of course, instantly you can recognize an ecological um, strategy that you could derive from that understanding that you observe the changes yes but then you observe the rate at which they're changing and it's the second order of awareness that really whispers to you where in the arc of your days or in the days of the culture we are so i took the understanding and suggested the following young people don't have generations anymore why because the rate of change is too rapid that's why there's there's You don't have time enough to assemble a generation around you, even though you're given the name. But if you actually observe your sort of kinship pattern, if you will, generationally speaking, you realize it doesn't span a a group of people who are, you know, plus or minus 15 or 20 years on either side of you. I've had enormous numbers of young people say to me, Listening to you, I realize I literally don't know an older person than me outside my family, for example. And then they stop and say, or a younger person for that matter either. So young people don't have generations. They have decades. That's all they have. People on five, you know, five years either side of them, that's their kinship group. That's who they, you know, run with. That's who understands their cultural references. That's who gets it. That's who's worth it and so on. 
That's who you're going to sleep with and so on. So if that's the case, then the arrangement by definition, because of the rate of change, makes old people obsolete before they're old. And the way it does it is it takes our, our previous understanding of what it means to be aging and then finally aged and changes it almost unrecognizably as follows. I can tell you that when I was probably in my 40s, uh, people in their 40s understood themselves to be kind of in the, at the fundamental crux of their life, where everything that was ever going to be available to them was available then. then. And uh, it was an optimal time of life. Today, people in their 40s are routinely being lapped by people in their 20s or even their teens when it comes to you know, technical knowledge that they can use on their, in their jobs and so on. It's literally come to this in a very short period of time that the hippest people are the ones who are not burdened by experience. They're free of experience because they're young, which they're highly adaptable instead, you see. And I really want to point that phrase out. They're not burdened by experience because experience is equated with prejudice now. This is why older people are basically a discontinued item in the kind of cultural bargain basement in the spiritual uh, marketplace. So it's, I mean, it's beyond describing the, the wreckage and the ruination and the poverty that ensues from such a thing. And at the same time, we have to credit the following. I was interviewed by a guy in New York City who went just completely crazy at me when I challenged his, his typification that in his lifetime, when his childhood, everything was, quote, Norman Rockwell and all of that. I said to him, it can't be true, man. It might have been true in your personal experience, but with any reflection at all, you know that it wasn't true in the larger world around you when you were young. Why? Because it hasn't gone that bad that fast. That's why. Because the craziness of today had its roots in the Rockwell painting that you're, that you're depicting you know, as the great untouched, undisturbed time. Uh, he, needless to say, he didn't welcome the notion. And uh, it was his program, so he didn't welcome the intrusion into his order either. And, and with it, I was simply trying to suggest that you know, there was a time, and he mentioned it, when we grew up, when people would say to each other with some frequency, respect your elders. And people did it. I'm not saying everybody did it, but I'm saying it was a kind of unquestioned cultural norm not that long ago. And of course, we know today that this is simply not true. It's not true as an observed fact of cultural life. It may still be used as a piece of advocacy, but it's not accurate as a piece of observation. The problem with the, the invocation, uh, respect your elders, is that it ignores the other half that was rarely said, but it's, it's what, it's what um, lent real credence and ballast to the, to the uh, obligation to do it. And the other half of it went like this, respect your elders and they shall proceed in a respectable fashion. That was the partnership, you see. The fact that Respecting your elders is the only part that broke the surface and became articulated is perhaps, with the benefit of hindsight, a terrible oversight and should have been said all along. But it wasn't. And what's happened during the course of my lifetime 
is it's very clear that the people who are demanding to be treated as elders today, it's not very likely that they proceeded through their lives in such a way as to cultivate the respect that they're now demanding. So there's nothing automatic about it, not even in, quote, conventional uh, or uh, indigenous cultures that still have an elder function or presence in their cultural lives. If the elders proceeded respectably, then the respect that accrues to age would be one of the foregone and proper conclusions or consequences of doing so. So in other words, you're kind of um, preparing the bed that you will lay in by proceeding in a respectable fashion. And if people do that intergenerationally, what's that called? It's called a healthy culture that respects its limits and is willing to live within, within them and not chafe against them. Today, we have a circumstance in which we're extending people's lives at the same time in which we're corrupting their capacity to be elders. And these two things are related because elderhood is a consequence of learning limit, not testing and defying it. As soon as you test it and defy limit, you're engaged in an adolescent repertoire of contending with the natural world, which leads us to the coronavirus. I just want to underscore the fact that that what you argue in your books is that elderhood is something that you achieve, that becoming an elder requires you to be an agent of your own aging in the same way that that death is something you achieve. You know, to die, you have to be the agent of that sentence, I am dying. Um, that it's not something conferred on you. It's not something that just simply happens through biological processes. It's something that requires intention and instruction and and a certain kind of, of sacrifice and a certain kind of openness in order to be able to to reach those places to be, you know, that elder who is worthy of respect by a younger generation. Mm-hmm. And it also requires your willingness to lay down all the other possibilities. That's an important aspect to what you just very well said. And the other thing is, I was going to actually use the word confer, and then you suggested maybe not, but I'd like to reintroduce it into what you said and say. Let's start with your ability to die, and then we'll go to elderhood. Your ability to die, to recognize that you are dying doesn't necessarily come from, you know, uh, hours-long contemplation about your mortality. Your realization that you're dying is something that you're on the receiving end of by virtue of other people's willingness to live alongside you as if what's happening is happening. That's how the deep understanding comes. And then the repertoire for living accordingly, the one you just alluded to, should ensue in sort of partnership with the willingness of the people around you to corroborate your kind of stirring understanding that this is it. And as soon as they do, your confusion about where you are in the arc of your life softens and and um, loosens its grip on your understanding. So actually, I think the, the parallel to aging would be something like this. <clears throat> you could be aged, but your capacity to be an elder genuinely derives from the willingness of young people to seek you out 
as an elder. And you may um, preemptively or prematurely agree to be that by virtue of them seeking you out. But somewhere in there, as you listen to yourself pontificate, if that's what you're doing with your elder status, you may hear some hollowness or some lack of resonance or something that's disturbing in what's coming from you. And it could be that the young person's willingness to seek you out detonates a kind of involuntary self-examination or self-understanding. And that combination of things becomes the petri dish in which your elderhood is born. Well, I think this takes us back to to what comes up in at least the the subtitle of Die Wise, which is this plea for sanity, because you know the situation we're surrounded by is you know I'll, I'll use myself as an example in the hope of doing harm to no one else. You you get diagnosed with cancer, and no one around you is willing to confer or confirm that you are facing your own possible mortality, or mm-hmm. if you're Young by, the, people, by the way, there's no such thing as you. Sorry to interrupt. But there's no fine. such thing as your possible mortality. That's true. Right? Okay. That's true. There is your mortality, and it uh-huh. is inevitable, and it That's is coming. Right. Um, or we have these young people who are looking, you know, to a generation that is in their 70s or 80s and still imagining their potential, their capacity for infinite growth. Um, and so, so you can kind of see. The fix that we are in. I did want to ask you you one question. You you mentioned your time in the death trade. Um, you know the the perhaps more social term that would be out there would be something like you were, you were working in palliative care, and you give very powerful reasons for why you don't want to call it that. But but each time I've I've come across that phrase in your books or heard you say it, I've always wondered what were you trading. What is it that you were trading when you were in the death trade? Ah, oh, I see. I thought you were asking me, what did I trade in order for in order to get the term death trade? But now I see what you're asking me. Um, well, I use the term death trade because I thought it most fairly and authentically was the proper rendering of what the actual terms of engagement were. Uh, and it's, you know, me seeking after the authentic language that's that's was in there, too. What was I trading in? I suppose I was trading in in the um, the kind of ineffable skillfulness of being willing to be a faithful witness to the least welcome of life's propositions. That what I, I thought that was my principal obligation, the way I I operated accordingly was to decide that dying people deserved something from me that they were never going to ask for, which is that faithful witness. And the best way I can give you a feel for it, it's a very little vignette. You can hear the story on the Knights of Grief and Mystery uh, CD that we recorded a few years ago with the band. But it's a true story. And very literally, here's what happened. The guy was, uh, he was an airline pilot in the summertime. I'm in his house in October, and he's cachectic. That means he's withering, and he's dying of, I think it was pancreatic cancer, which is notoriously fast. And um, so he's laying there, and his wife is sitting in a chair sort of behind him. 
And so he's, he's between she and I. And I looked, I looked down at him, and after introducing myself, and he can't get up to say hello or anything of the kind, I, I ask him what I have to ask him. And at the same time, leave room for him to stumble or to fall or to lie. You know, that's my obligation is to treat him with respect as a grown-up. So I said to him, what's your understanding of what's happening? And he said, well, I, I understand that I'm very seriously ill, he said which is not a synonym for dying, by the way. So in that sense, he didn't get it right. But that's what he said. But he said, you know, I have chemo scheduled for next week. And I looked at him and I knew enough to know that nobody was going to give him chemo next week because he wouldn't have survived the chemo. And none of the lab techs are going to do that to somebody, no matter how loudly they howl for it. In the places in North America where it's still uh, voluntary instead of discretionary. And, and then I said to him, I only had one other question. It was going to be a very quick visit if this question went nowhere. I said to him, is there anything that you want to ask that you haven't asked anybody yet? And I think he knew what I was saying to him. So after a moment, he said, in more or less exactly this voice, he said, am I dying? Like that. As if this is kind of an afterthought to his physical challenges. And his wife looked at me or glared at me and her, and her look said very clearly, don't you dare affirm what both of us know to be true. And then I looked at him and I had to make a decision. To whom do I owe what? Where's my principal allegiance and fidelity to be found today? And I had to do that every blessed day that I was on that job. And it's not as self-evident as it might sound, not when you're in somebody's living room and there's no living going on in the room. So I took my chances and I took a breath and I looked at him and I said, yes, yes, you are. And you're not in the early stage of it and you're not even in the middle of it. You're deeply into it now. and You've already seen more dying than you're going to see. And this is what it's like. And you know, with no exaggeration, I saw him exhale deeply. And his shoulders, you know, dropped down from underneath his ears. And the, I can only describe it as a sense of remarkable and unsought relief that he experienced when he suddenly caught a glimpse of where in the arc of his days he was. His wife, on the other hand, exploded. And I had no right and so on. And that's where that went. So it's just a little true, ordinary little story that gives you a feel for what I was, quote, trading in. My obligation at that moment was to be a companion and a fellow citizen to a dying human. And I'm not saying there's only one way to do that. There's hundreds of ways to do it. But there's tens of thousands of ways of not doing it of colluding and worse. And that's what I was trading in is, you know, no more collusion with hope. The obligation is to be for real with somebody and then to try to find a way of doing that that didn't lose them entirely by a clumsy choice of words, such that you had the opportunity to say at least one more thing back and forth, the two of you. And yeah, I was trading in the way it is. And in trade for that, 
occasionally someone was deeply, remarkably, and for the most part, wordlessly grateful. Thank you for that. I am deeply grateful for these books and for your time and for the stories you shared today, but also for the the powerful stories that come in your books. Um, to pick up on something you said with the, the hope of, of exchanging a last word, um, I have you here. I'm wondering if there's, there's a question that's circling us um, that I haven't thought to ask that you see on the horizon that maybe we should speak to before, before I have to let you go. Oh, there's thousands of them, man. They're, they're crowding the balcony that I'm sitting and talking to you on. I can barely see the light of day by virtue of the questions around that you haven't asked me yet. <laughs> of course there are. And I don't, I can't think of one though. I, I, I'm looking at them carefully and none of them are showing their face to me. So I, I really don't know uh, what you haven't asked me yet. But it seems that there's something in, in, you know, us going back and forth. I know I did most of the yammer this time, but there's something in our willingness to do it, which is another question spoken to that wasn't asked. Our willingness to engage this thing with a sense of urgency about it all and with a sense of what's happening and what's not happening and God knows should be happening right now and with a sense of high regard for the likelihood that we're going to stumble into people's lives accidentally by virtue of them, you know, uh, turning this on and, 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 uh, and hearing it uh, or halfway through or something. And we're going to literally be intruding into their lives uninvited. And I think both of us each in our way have conducted ourselves as if we're guests uh, in the lives of people that we're never going to be able to meet. Uh, in a time like this in particular, where meeting is held in high mistrust, maybe the proper etiquette of our meeting now should be a willingness to take deeply and seriously the reality of another person's life and the, the tremendous travail that it's lived within. And, and conduct yourself like if you happen to be granted temporary and accidental entry, that you conduct yourself as someone whose predecessors could be proud of them and claim them by doing so. And maybe we took a few steps in that direction today. Thank you for being on the New Books Network and for your time and the, the wisdom that you've been willing to share. Well, thank you very, very kindly for your attention and for your imagining that something I might be able to come up with would be worth having. And your show. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Stephen Jenkinson, author of Come of Age The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, here on the New Books Network. <laughs>